You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel, and today I have Blanca Velasquez-Martin. And Blanca and I have been having little conversations um, on social media. I just love what she's been posting, what she's been sharing, and I invited her, her on to share how the brain works and, more importantly, how we can help our children not only through their meltdowns and tantrums, but just in everyday life to have, you know, healthy uh, mental space and confidence and so forth. So Blanca, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Emory. It is really an honor. So uh, Blanca, before we get started, I always love to have my guests define what the art of parenting means to them. Yeah, such a big question, right? And, and filled with nuance, but um, so important. Um, I like to think of the art of parenting as that everlasting willingness for growth um, and humility within our relationship with the young people in our lives. I think as parents, as educators, we get so caught in the aspect of we are the leaders, we're the, the ones that's hard, that are supposed to know, when in reality, we are building yet another relationship with someone in our lives, right? So I think when I mean willingness to growth, what I mean is you have, uh, we have to make space for growth because we know nothing about this person. We're learning who they are. Um, we've never parented them before, or guided them before. So create that new space in our brain and ourselves to understand who they are and growth in the practical sense and being willing to inform ourselves about the facts, um, about what this person needs for their development to, for their development, and um, which means that we may need to support their development or, or their behavior in ways that are different uh, from what we knew as children, right? So just, again, because hopefully we, we grow wiser, right? But um, I mentioned the humility because the goal is never perfection. And like, there's so much, again, there's just such an art to this, right? It's, it's never perfect. So no aspect of growth or relationships ever is. So just being willing to be messy in the process, because that's kind of where we move forward in relationships and that willingness to accept where growth needs to happen and how to move forward. Yes. And I, and I like that, the, the humility of knowing that we don't know everything, right? <laughs> 
to be willing to learn alongside our children, I think is so important. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that. And so before we get started in our conversation, I'd love if you would share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work you're doing today. So I am a psychotherapist. My background is in clinical psychology. And for almost a decade, I worked as a research um, professional, actually doing clinical research in the psychology field, as well as being a therapist. But after becoming a parent, I kind of took a step away and stirred really heavily into supporting other parents. Uh, pandemic gave me an opportunity to kind of do that in the platform that I have today, Whole Child Home. Um which is still both a website and a social media um, platform, but really focusing on helping parents understand how to support their children's growth, emotional development at home. Uh, so that's kind of what I focus on now in parenting consultations and psychoeducation and workshops to help parents um, support their young children at home. Beautiful. What in great work and so needed these days. I mean, every day, but I think more so after having gone through this pandemic with a lot of families, I feel like there's been really a big uptick in, in mental health issues, anxiety, and so forth. So I'm sure you have your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, as uh, one of the things that, as you you mentioned, or, you know, already, I'm very much heavily oriented toward Montessori parenting and Montessori child. We, I consider myself a Montessori parent and also positive discipline. And I think I had a young toddler when pandemic um, happened and connected with so many parents on a personal level, also a professional level that also had a young toddler at home as, as first time parents. And it's just so tricky to know what to do um, in a place where you're kind of supposed to know, or you're made to feel like you're supposed to know what to do. Right. So it's been really a privilege to be in a position to support parents during a time that was really unique. And what, uh, what led you to being a Montessori parent? Being a Montessori child myself, really. Ah. I just never saw it any other way. I, I knew of Montessori from the time that I was a young toddler myself. Uh, that's kind of how my family operated in terms of supporting children's academic and, and developmental um, growth. And um, I, I always knew that Montessori would be part of my life as a parent if I was ever to become a parent. I never knew that I would share it with the world in the way I've been so fortunate and so privileged to do now. Um, but it's that's kind of how it happened for me. And it's been a continued learning process. I, I read Montessori's works just kind of on my own, even before becoming a parent. So it's just it feels kind of like full circle now to be able to share that. Definitely. And, and having been a Montessori child to me, must uh, feels like a privilege. Like I, I just, you know, I, I, I've, I know a few and I just, there, there's always this real connection that they have with, with the method and, and just understanding the principles having, you know, lived it and, and operated and, most of them definitely choose to be Montessori parents uh, themselves. So, <laughs> but um, I'd love if we could get a little bit more into the understanding really of this whole, uh, I think evolution. I mean, I like to think of it as a positive evolution about respectful parenting and kind of the more gentle parenting strategies that are, you know, that, that we have. But I think that 
a lot of it where we're kind of shared these, you know, tactics and, oh, no, you should be, you know, doing this or that. But there's never really a deep understanding as to why, you know, that the real science behind this notion of, you know, why it's important not to yell to our child, not to hit our child, all of this, right? I mean, I think some of it seems pretty obvious, but I think there's a real lack maybe of of deep understanding uh, for some parents. And I'd love if, you know, with your background, if you could share that with our listeners. Of course. And we could go in a million different directions, right? So I think if, if there's anything I'll say is that this is kind of like, we could kind of touch on the tip of the iceberg today, but that this, it's not to make you feel like, okay, you should know everything or that this is the it but there's so much uh, to learn out there so this is one of like I mentioned is like this willingness to grow there's just so much to learn and it's just part of the process and one of the reasons why I have dedicated the last couple of years to parent consultations and parenting workshops you know I was inspired by my own parenting experience but it's because as a parent and as a professional, and I was an early interventionist early on in my career, it's very clear that we have, we offer caregivers and educators a lot of information about other aspects of development, physical development. I think we have very clear an idea we get from a pediatrician very quickly, uh, some pointers into how to support, you know, tummy time or free movement and when we should expect a baby to crawl, to move, to walk, etc. right? Similar um, guidelines and milestones um, are given to us regarding speech, like how many words, when should your baby babble, when should they babble back, um, you know, how many words they should be saying by a certain age and how to support them and you know exactly who to go to if you need support, right? And for socio-emotional development and emotional development, I, I really don't feel like we have or enough information um, or we don't offer caregivers and educators enough information about how the young brain works and how what truly supports its development and, and its healthy road to, to building self-regulation and healthy behavior, right? I think it's not until children turn two that we start facing as caregivers tricky behaviors or tricky emotions that we don't know what to do. And we automatically default to what we know as um maybe what was, what was done with us as children, right? Because and, and, and culturally, there's a lot of aspects built in there. So we kind of default to that. And sometimes we get help from pediatricians, but they're not experts at, at socio-emotional development either, right? So I think that's why I'm so passionate about supporting parents in this area, because I don't think we, we give caregivers enough information. So from there... I think, you know, we now have many parents invested in this, like you mentioned, respectful parenting, gentle discipline, gentle parenting. And while I think that is a wonderful shift that is happening uh, with caregivers, I think we have to be very careful in how the words and the terms are used because a lot of times, like you mentioned, without the knowledge, without the background, without understanding the nuance of where these terms come from and where these strategies come from or why they work or why they should be continued even though they don't work right away is because it's gentle and respectful parenting, however you want to call it. It's not about just being permissive. It is about having respect for the child's pace of emotional and socio-emotional development. 
which sometimes mean we have to be kinder than we may think we have to be while, you know, still remaining firm and setting boundaries, but a little bit kinder or nicer than we, we would have otherwise. Like you mentioned, you know, we don't, we know that, um, Harming children is not good, you know, aggressiveness and, and hitting children is not good. Timeouts are just not a thing anymore. And we have a lot of science into why not. Um, but it's that understanding that gentle doesn't mean permissive. Respect doesn't mean permissiveness. It's about meeting the child where they're at in their development with what their brain needs. Yes. And and I and I love what the, that you say. It's working on being even kinder than we, you know, because it's true, we might, you know, we might feel that we're, we're being gentler or such. And oftentimes it's from what we experience as, as a child, right? That's that to me, I always say is, is, is our only kind of diploma that we have to be parents is, is our own childhood experience. And, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. And, and so we, we tend to repeat that. But I love how you say, um, you know, to, to even go like a step further. And it reminds me of um, uh, Tina Payne Bryson that I'm sure you know, who wrote the oh, of course. whole brain yeah. child and all that. I remember her speaking about, you know, how important it is for us to come down to the child's level to look at them in the eyes, right? And I remember her explaining something about uh, the brain, and, and you might know this, but how even going even lower than their own eyes so that they could look down on us was very calming to them. And I thought like, you know, it's true that we tend to, you know, be up way above our children and kind of looking down on them and how scary that might be. And so this notion of, you know, going even further, like you say, even kinder is <laughs> going to give them that even, you know, more relaxed and, and not be fearful and that they can really trust us. So yes, beautiful. You did mention something um, briefly, you said timeouts don't work. So what's the science behind that? Like, cause I'm sure a lot of, I'm sure a lot of listeners went, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm getting, you know, like, they're going to come at me for this, but you know, so, so I, it actually has to do with something that you mentioned that uh, Dr. Payne Bryson mentions. Um, and in terms of children feeling scared when we show up in a, spe in a specific way, right? I think this is what's known in positive discipline world as the gentle giant situation, right? We're still, we can be gentle, but we're still giant, like much bigger than them. So I want you to think of kind of like, and this is a model that is offered and often taught by um, Dan Siegel also, who wrote the whole child brain. Um, the whole, yeah. Um, and, and if you think of your the palm of your hand and you put your thumb in inside of it, and, and we think of that as the amygdala, the most, you know, survival-driven brain, the one that acts, that reacts to to fear to danger um from a, an evolutionary place of wanting to keep you safe that is its job is to keep you safe and it reacts from a fight or flight response precisely to keep you safe this is why children cry when they feel in danger when they are hungry when they don't see you this is why toddlers um, cry or resist when we push them to go to the bathroom or something even if even if, if it's not really a dangerous situation, right? It's just a transition time. We have to leave the park. They perceive it as really dangerous and really against what they wanted. So they react to it. But all of these reactions that we often interpret in babies, very, you know, 
gently like, oh, they're crying, let me let me assist them. But in toddlers, it gets trickier, right? Oh, they're crying because they're making them go to the bathroom and we get frustrated. But these reactions are coming from the same place, that reactive amygdala survival brain, whose job is to react to threat. And what we often forget when it comes to young children is that the part of the brain that actually works with us to find solutions, to understand reasons, to to work on, to actually take on and get by by in, um, in positive alternatives, like you know, trying to get them to to a place where we want them to get to, that part of the brain, which is if you fold your fingers over your thumb, that completes the brain. That would be the the prefrontal cortex, that thinking part of the brain doesn't really finish developing until the mid-20s. And not only that, so we're going to be working on their skills for self-regulation and and problem-solving for a while, but when their reactive brain is activated, the other part is not. It's kind of like what Dan Siegel refers to as the opened lid. Like the lid opens in the brain and that thinking part of the brain is no longer active. It's offline and they're purely acting from a place of reactive seeking safety and those behaviors are what we often define as you know the tantrum the kicking the screaming the resistance the defiance when it's not really manipulative or coming from a place of really wanting to push our buttons on purpose it's not personal it's coming from a place of them feeling a threat and you mentioned a, a great example of it which is simply or height we may not think of this but if they're already frustrated about something that is not going their way. They're suddenly, their thinking brain is slowly but surely becoming offline because of this frustration and this deep emotion that is overwhelming their body. They start only coming from a place of being reactive from their survival brain, simply seeking safety. They're going to start kicking and screaming. And then on top of that, they're approached by this person that is supposed to be their source of safety. We are their only source of safety and love and connection and comfort. And we're using a loud voice. We're using that voice from really high up, from a place that really seems threatening in that moment. Maybe not to a brain that is thinking and connected and problem solving, but to a brain that is fully acting from a place of survival and threat and fight or flight responses, it is very threatening, which is why she mentioned, Dr. Uh, Tina Payne Bryson mentions, get down, get low, lower your voice, get at eye level and connect before moving forward. Because what the brain needs in that moment is simply connection, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes, I mean, it makes total sense to me, but but I know that for some parents, it seems like counterintuitive, right? It is, but it is, right? It's, it's not what we would expect because it's not what usually happens in adult relationships, right? Hopefully we get to a place where we can talk or we can sit down and like figure this out. But again, that part of the brain for, for, ch- for children, for humans in general, really doesn't finish fine-tuning until mid-20s. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be all impulsive and out of control until then. No, this is a process, right? But we need to remember not only that, that it takes time, but that in moments when we already see that part of their brain offline, we just need to wait it out and connect respectfully and, and firmly with boundaries as needed, but without adding to the stressor of them feeling unsafe, which may be simply about our behavior. Now, you were mentioning the timeouts, right? And why they really don't work. So 
what we know helps create neural pathways, meaning connections. Think of them like train tracks within the brain that connect at this regulated moment of this very reactive brain moment that we're talking about with problem solving, with self-regulation, with finding calm, with actually connecting with a caregiver that is trying to help you. That is a process that takes practice over and over and over again for them to know when I scream, there is going to be a boundary, but I'm going to remain safe. This person is here to help me in this motion runs its course, it passes, mom is going to still be here, she's still going to love me, and we are going to find a solution together. It may not be the one I wanted to write, but slowly but surely, I'll get, get practice and get better at being resilient to this frustration. But so that entire process is what a neural pathway is. It's basically like a train track that the brain is building between those two, you know, feeling and thinking brains to slowly but surely get to a place where when frustration comes, your brain knows what to do. It knows, okay, this frustration, it'll pass. I'm annoyed, but mom is here. I'll get through this. And I know we find a solution later. That's a neural pathway toward healthy emotional regulation. But we know now from science that that pathway can only get built, get strengthened, and actually become a thing for the brain to continuously grow from and practice if the brain feels safe to a point where that reactive brain slowly starts shutting down, the thinking brain starts becoming active again and connecting so that then the child can learn. No child can learn if they're feeling threatened, if they're feeling unsafe, if that emotional, like very reactive survival brain that I was talking about is on. If that one is activated, your child is not learning absolutely anything about that situation. They need safety. They need connection. They still need a boundary. We're not talking about permissiveness, right? But they need that kind, um, unthreatening presence from you to get through that moment until you guys can connect about learning again. What happens with timeouts is that we rob children. We rob the brain and we rob ourselves from that opportunity for branding, for building that brain connection. Because we, as a result of that behavior, we place a child in isolation at a time when I just said, you know, the child is seeking safety, the child is seeking connection, the brain feels completely out of control. And then we're isolating the child and we isolate the brain, which is the opposite of what the brain needs in that moment from the, the source of safety and guidance, the adult. And beyond that, what happens is the child goes into isolation or into that chair or that stool or whatever at a place where their brain is really not connected to that thinking part. They're, they're completely dysregulated and at a place of feeling unsafe. So they're not really going to sit there and think about what they did. They're not going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, that's right. I should not have kicked mommy. That was not really the right thing to do. Like, it's, it's not going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. Um just because you put them in a timeout. So that's that's really why we know from a brain-building perspective towards self-regulation, to healthy emotional behavior, uh, socio-emotional behavior, that it robs us from an opportunity to support the child, to build and nurture a healthy trust and relationship with us as their, as their leaders, as respectful leaders. And it also doesn't really lead to learning or the learning that we hope happens by us isolating them or robbing them from a privilege or taking something away. Right. And actually, that was going to be my next question is because um, I know a lot of 
parents think that if they take something that is meaningful to the child, you know, from a reaction of, of maybe a behavior that is inappropriate. And again, we know that it's in a, inappropriate in our eyes, but for me, the child doesn't necessarily know it's appropriate or inappropriate. No. <laughs> they're, they're brand new on the planet. So how should they know? Right. Um, <laughs> so, so again, the, and, and when you say, you know, that they're not thinking about what they did to me, they're not, they're, they're probably thinking what an awful person I am. I mean, that, that to me is what timeout equates. It's like, go to your room and think about, you know, what a terrible person you are, which, which just makes me so sad. And, and, you know, I have vivid memories of being told to go to timeout. It was actually your, the, the, the saying was you're in the doghouse. That was that, that I knew, I knew I was in trouble. Uh, <laughs> you know, not, not, not that maybe I didn't even learn, you know, why, but that was, that was it. And so for me, from what I, you know, what I'm understanding from what you're saying is that as opposed to us reacting to this behavior, because, you know, again, I think we're, we're humans too. And sometimes, you know, our child's behavior will trigger us and we'll get upset too. So, so, you know, we might react a certain way, but what I'm hearing, it's really about this waiting game, right? It's really about (laughs) like taking a deep breath and waiting it out and just having that patience and that love for your child that their, 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 you know, brain will come back online and that at that point you can, you know, try to reason with them depending on their age, of course, but that it's really about caring for yourself too, right? If your, if your brain is going offline, because it will go offline, right? So can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So you mentioned two very important things. So the first one is kind of, you were talking about like what the child actually thinks about when they're set out in a timeout. And this varies by ages, right? Like a two-year-old is going to do or think very differently than an eight-year-old in a timeout. But, you know, it's, it's so true. And, and I, if you're listening, you can just simply ask yourself, what did I think of myself? Or actually, what did I, what was I thinking on my own by myself in my room when I was sent to my room when I was put in that corner, like what went through my head. And it's exactly what you're, what you're talking about, right? You start thinking about what that means about yourself. I was bad, or I don't know how to do this, or I'm a bad person. I'm an aggressive person. I don't know how to play with my sibling. I'm always getting in trouble. Like the brain is always, maybe it's not learning the, the what we would what we aim for it to learn in that moment but it's learning something the brain is always making connections so those neural pathways I talked about those train wrecks um, what happens in those moments of isolation is those the train tracks that get built are those connections between when I behave this way I'm bad when I behave this way I'm, I'm a bad person or I behave this way because I'm not capable of anything better or I'm, you know, I'm not loved when I behave this way. Those are the messages. Those are the pathways. Those are the train wrecks that the brain starts building. And those remain also there. And, you know, they, they mean a lot for the brain moving forward. And in, in a way, it's tricky because we talked about how sometimes you do what you know, right? Like this is how it was done with you. So you do what you know. And there is this tendency for us to want to teach the right thing from a place of 
fear of like, if you know, if you don't do it this way, then this will happen. But it's from a place of fear, causing fear where, you know, you did this. So then now you get, don't get that, or you get isolated or you go in a timeout or the bad chair or something. So it's shame. But we know again, that the child, the brain doesn't learn from a place of shame. They don't learn from a place of fear. That is that more reactive survival brain. There's no learning there. So that's why another reason why that approach really isn't, isn't the most effective or the most um, efficient. Um, and the other thing you mentioned along with that is the importance of, we're talking about humility and, and the importance of pausing and just waiting it out. But what you were describing basically in terms of the importance for how we show up, the importance of pausing, the importance of not taking it personal and waiting it, the, the survival brain out until the other part becomes online, that is what is often known as um, co-regulation. So from science, we know that co-regulation, so offering our child our own self-regulation, modeling it, showing it, transferring it, like letting them feel what regulation feels by, feels like by the way we are embodying it, that is what builds their self-regulation. I mentioned that those pathways of, okay, when I have this emotion and this behavior, we remain here, there is a boundary, but I survive it, and this is what we do after. That comes from a place of an adult showing and guiding that process respectfully, calmly, and effectively. And that is co-regulation. Sometimes that means that by waiting it out, we're just not sitting there and just like completely stoic and just waiting for the child to stop screaming. No, sometimes that means actually, you know, nurturing the child a little bit, hugging them, rocking them around, sometimes humming. That reactive part of the brain really doesn't respond to language. So a lot of sensory input, a lot of physical input is what kind of regulates the body. We are the only ones that can really offer that. That is co-regulation. I'm sharing my regulation with you. I'm sharing my calm. Them looking at us from a place of eye, um, at eye level, you were mentioning that, sometimes just simply connecting with a child from a place of a lower voice, from a, an eye level, even for them to look down at us, really takes the edge off. But that's what it means. We're co-regulating with them, right? And, and showing up and sharing our calm. And sometimes that means we have to get creative. Sometimes we need to move to a different room. Sometimes we need to think about the environment, right? Like, is it too noisy in here? Is there a sibling that's like picking on them? Is it, you know, are they, so then it means that we move around or we rock them in a different way. We sing a different song. Like it, it's, it's again, an art. It's not a perfect thing. It's it's it, not one thing works every time, but that what you're describing is co-regulation, which is if you think of your baby, we think a lot of this again with my example. I think we're so responsive to babies, but at the time they hit too, that we kind of forget. But if you think about your baby and how we used to know, we we know that oh we babble and then we wait. That serve and receive, we wait until they babble back. And then we get excited and then we do it again, right? It's that communication. And that's partly mirror neurons, neurons within our brains that are reacting and mimicking each other. So in that moment, those tricky moments, like you mentioned, is, is more difficult to think about, but the brain works the same. That two-year-old that's kicking and streaming, that three-year-old that is now using their voice to resist um, in very smart, eloquent ways, it's seeking those same neurons of regulated, the regulated prepared adult to learn what to do. So 
we mirror what we want for them to see. And it's not magic. It's not a magic wand, but that is part of the process. That's co-regulation. And, and it sounds, it sounds beautiful and it sounds so, so peaceful, right? But I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the parents who, who also get dysregulated in this, in these moments, right? So how do you... Just all of us, right? All of us, right? All like of us. How, <laughs> how how do you how do you like the the process to be able to stay calm for your child when you're when you're losing it? Like you you've had enough of this. This you know it's been a rough day. You're tired. You're you know you, I don't know. You haven't showered yet. Like there there's there's a lot of things going on that you just are kind of at your wits end and. And so, you know, and then because I, I, I feel that a lot of parents, you know, might feel this way and then they and then they're going to, you know, be really critical about how they reacted and all this and what a terrible parent I am. And I just want to, you know, say it out loud is like it's not easy and it's a practice. It's a practice that we need to even practice on ourselves, like what's going to calm us first and foremost, so that we can be that, you know, regulator for the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember when I mentioned it, that's, that's precisely why I think of like that willingness to growth. If you think of, if you remember what I mentioned, the artist, like that willingness to growth, because it's, we have to sometimes strengthen and build our own regulating skills. It's really humbling to become a parent or become an educator or to work with a young person and realize how difficult it is for you to do what you're asking for them to do and how much work you also have to put in to get to a place of being able to support them. And that being fully your responsibility and your own need for growth. It's truly, truly humbling and it's messy. Um, and if you're listening, you're not alone, absolutely not alone in engaging in that growth. I mean, these are relationships that we're talking about. Um, but, you know, we're talking about, you were, you were saying, you know, what, what, what are parents supposed to do when it gets so tricky? And there's, it's kind of like a two-part answer. There's the, rea- the reactive things that we do in those moments, but there's also the proactive things that we can do. So when I think of those moments that you were describing, the, you know, the, the pot is boiling over and the one, the baby's pulling at you, the toddler just like screaming from the other side of the house, the dog is barking, the phone is ringing. Like it's just, for whatever reason, you're just going, you are going to lose it, right? There's many, many versions of this. Um, pausing is okay. It is okay to not do something immediately. Something that I always like to remind parents of is that that behavior, that annoying behavior that you're getting from your child or the tantrum, those are rarely an emergency. They really rarely are an emergency. A tantrum is not an emergency. A big behavior, big emotion is not an emergency. It needs to be connected with, it needs to be addressed, but it is absolutely okay if you take 10 or 15 seconds to breathe and just put your hand on your face and your on your chest some people like tapping like whatever works for you 
and just really sitting down on the floor and just as long as everybody's safe, sometimes that means that you need to like kind of drag people with you to the floor to just kind of make sure that they're not like hitting each other or whatever it is that you need to do. But it is okay to pause, to breathe and to try to center yourself so that you can open your mouth and open your eyes and move your body and approach your child in a way that does not do harm. That is, it, you know, it's it will be messy. You might not say the perfect thing. You might not do the perfect thing. But if you give yourself those few seconds to self-regulate, that is huge for how you're going to show up. And the second reason that is huge is because opposite to popular, you know, to, to the common concern of like, oh, I can't see my, I can't let my child look at me completely falling apart. No, wrong. We want them to see what self-regulation looks like. We want them to see that those moments, those human moments of falling apart and getting back together, we want them to see what they look like. And you are, and we say this in Montessori, and that's why I love this, the adult is the most important material in the room. It is not the emotion books. It is not, you know, the the emotion materials that you have out. It's not what you say they should be doing. It's what you do. When you are yourself having those moments of, of deep emotions and it's okay to say, you know, you know what, honey, I really need to take this moment to breathe and then, you know, and I'm going to count and then just, I'm feeling this, my chest is feeling really tight. It doesn't feel right. And I need to take care of this emotion so I can help you. And they might be screaming next to you, not really paying attention. You might have a toddler that suddenly stops screaming because they're like, oh, this is weird. What is she doing? And that is learning. They are watching you self-regulate. Yeah, so so important to be modeling that for them. Yeah, beautiful. And then the, the other piece was the more proactive piece, which is, you know, again, like just borrowing this other term from, from Montessori, the Montessori world is this idea of the prepared adult, right? And knowing that a lot of times we get to those places of deep dysregulation because we go into the moment with unrealistic expectations or we go into the moment unprepared to support our child or we go into the moment we're just really not knowing what to expect um, or not preparing our own self-regulation ahead of time our own self-care um, and, and keeping in mind the child that we have keeping in our expectations in check and making sure that we think of our home environment in the process and we think of our own or our self or self-care, our own environment within us as, as the most important to, to care for. Um, those are the big pieces of a prepared adult in this case, because we can only we say this about children, right? They do well when they can. Um, I forget whose quote it is. It's, it's definitely not mine. But that it holds true for us as well. We do well when we can. Um, and we usually do better when we come in prepared, when we have realistic expectations and when we, we have taken care of ourselves as well. Thank you for that. So, so important. And, and I know, you know, I think we, we repeat it often, but I think it's never said enough that we need to calm ourselves first and foremost before we can expect anybody else to calm, be calm, right? Beautiful. Thank you for that, uh, Blanca. Now, as we wrap up, and, and I know I could go on forever because I have plenty of other questions, but I'm just being mindful of the time. And um, 
I like to kind of wrap things up with a, a more personal question. So I know you mentioned that you were a parent yourself. Uh, you have two children, is that correct? I have one. I have a oh, one, four, one. Yeah, I have a four and a half year old. Four and a half year old. So, so if you were to think back to maybe five, five years, five and a half years when you were expecting your child, what wise words? would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? I would tell myself that I'm doing just fine. Hmm. You are doing just fine. And you are the mom your child needs. And so true. And I, and it's funny you say that because I've, I've always been like a, a believer that we also are given the child that we need for whatever growth mm-hmm. that needs to happen, whatever lesson. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, thank you for that. Any uh, parting words, uh, closing words that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Um, I guess those just know that you are doing beautifully and that if you're listening and investing the time in learning and and keeping track of podcasts and, and seeking recommendations for what to read next or who to learn from next, that is so much work um, already done toward success and toward building a good relationship with your child you're investing time in learning that is that is everything and along with learning the other thing that i would say is learn but do not get over if you feel overwhelmed by it if the learning and the the scrolling through social media starts getting overwhelming and making you feel guilty or stressed instead of empowered instead of prepared then stop it's okay to stop. It's always okay to pause. And like just like we were saying, and and really focus on on learning from who makes you feel empowered and prepared and makes you feel like you're growing instead of making you feel like you're doing it wrong or you're you're not doing. You know that it, if it's been stressful, stop. Thank you for that. Yes, yeah, so so important to to observe the reactions within ourselves that we're getting mm-hmm. from the information we're consuming. Thank you for that. Well, thank you so much, Blanca, for making the time to be on The Art of Parenting today. I really appreciate your wisdom and just your your vision of our children. Thank you. Thank you. It is an honor. And thank you so, so much for everybody who stopped by to listen. Have you been searching for the owner's manual to your child or did you just misplace it? Are you tired of trying to figure out this whole parenting puzzle, not knowing what to do when it comes to tantrums, hitting or biting, sibling rivalry, potty training, proper sleep habits, or just plain wanting a better relationship with your child? You know, I've been at this for a while now and wanted to share my own parenting manual. It's called The Parenting School, and I've created it with you in mind. Give your child and yourself the gift of mindful parenting in just a few short weeks and discover all the tools you'll ever need to parent without losing your patience, giving in, or worrying that you're messing up. If you're yearning to be more patient and present with your child while finding balance in your own life, then you already know that you need effective parenting tools and ongoing support. You know you weren't meant to be raising children alone. And you probably already know that having the right parenting tools during moments of conflict is the key to staying grounded, 
responding with empathy, and strengthening your parent-child relationship. You've probably sensed that you'd be a more confident parent if you had a like-minded community supporting and encouraging you. Your skills have gotten you this far, but most days you still feel like you're making it up as you go. So here's what I've got for you. Reliable parenting principles that will allow you to finally set boundaries you can confidently uphold, communicate effectively with your child, declutter your home to enhance your child's independence, learning, and family harmony, and find more time to do the things you love. This is what the parenting school is all about. During this digital parenting course, you'll get weekly modules with lessons focused on key areas to get you where you want to be. These modules come packed full of video tutorials, journal prompts, actionable activities, expert interviews, and more, as well as weekly Lifeline group mentoring calls where I answer your questions personally, plus a virtual village with like-minded parents supporting each other during this deep-dive parenting intensive. I'll also include some extra special bonuses to keep you inspired and motivated along the way. So if this sounds too good to be true and you're ready to up-level your parenting skills as well as your family's well-being, head on over to The Parenting School at voilamontessori.com slash TPS dash enroll. That's TPS for The Parenting School dash enroll. To learn more about the, all the benefits of this fabulous interactive digital course I've created just for you. And by the way, I've also added the link in the show notes for you. Looking forward to supporting you and your family. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.